Welcome to episode 53 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, today is a big day on the podcast because we will be sitting down to a nice Royale with cheese and $5 milkshake to review my most anticipated movie of 2019, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But before we get to that, how are you, Scott? I know you were out of town this past weekend. Yes, I was out of town. I was back in Williamstown, my old stomping ground, seeing one of my Close friends from college. She's been working there for the last year, and it was her last weekend there before she uh, preps for law school. She's going to law school uh, in the fall at Georgetown. So oh, nice. She's uh, she's about to embark on her three year journey as look to conclude yours. So, Feels like a lot longer than three years, let me tell you. But it's only been two so far. So I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a really great weekend. Uh, great, great to not only see her but be back in Williamstown, uh, kind of soaking in all the memories. And uh, yeah, it was just a really great time, but it did uh, cor- it did lead to us, or well, one, I should say, the combination of that and then Quentin Tarantino's movie being three hours long uh, did lead to us recording on a Monday, which is a rare occurrence for us. Yeah, you know, he's not known for uh, being, he's not known for his brevity, uh, Quentin Tarantino <laughs> certainly isn't. But, you know, I'm of the mentality that since we only get one of these movies every three or four years, you know, I'm willing to, ex- you know, sit there for you know, I'm not going to say forever, but uh, for, you know, a, a greater than average amount of time, if it means getting to watch a Quentin Tarantino movie in theaters. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's always uh, an experience to think maybe if he his next one may be a little faster since I think he got married between he did uh, yeah. the last time or his last movie, which was The Hateful Eight and this one. So maybe the, the wait for the uh, number 10 or some other movie that doesn't count as number 10 will be sooner rather than later yeah he he's playing by his own rules but you know that's how he's always uh defined his career but all right scott well i guess you can tell i can't wait any longer really to get to this movie so let's get to it once upon a time in hollywood is quentin tarantino's ninth and allegedly penultimate film and as the title suggests it is set in the glitzy world of 1969 hollywood where the sun is always shining the mansions are gleaming and the movie stars are glamorous That is, except for Rick Dalton, an aging, down-on-his-luck ex-star who has now resigned to playing one-off villain roles on TV. Played by Leonardo DiCaprio, Rick is accompanied in his midlife crisis by his loyal stuntman Cliff Booth, played in the movie by Brad Pitt, who is in a bit of a lull in his career himself, having been relegated to the role of chauffeur more than stuntman. On the other end of the spectrum, however, is Rick's next-door neighbor, Sharon Tate, a beautiful movie star on the rise, played by Margot Robbie. Lurking beneath the shiny surface of Hollywood, however, is a jarring and possibly sinister countercultural force embodied by Margaret Qualley's Pussycat, an unwashed hippie whose path happens to intersect with cliffs. Over the course of a meandering 160 minutes, Tarantino paints a nostalgic picture of a cultural moment that may never be replicated again. Is it a lovely picture to take in, Scott, or do Tarantino's gonzo proclivities threaten to derail his scenic journey? I think that this is a beautiful film, you know, not in, you know, I've described several films, I think probably over the last six, seven months is beautiful. 
I, you know, things that come to mind like Last Black Man in San Francisco or If Bill Street Could Talk. And those are a very different kind of beautiful. This is a beautiful and ethereal all its own. You know, you talked about it being a two hour and 40 minute runtime, which is long by, I think, any just about any movie length measurement. But it was never boring. You know, we discussed briefly, you mentioned it last night when we were just texting back and forth after I saw it, and I was already feeling this way and was going to say it on the podcast, Uh, but to go ahead and say that you were also thinking this, that this is probably the most Linklater feeling Tarantino movie that (laughs) we'll ever get. And that's because the first, I mean, not even the first, the whole movie, I still kind of think back and wonder, well, I'm not really quite sure what the point of the movie was, but it sure was a hell of a lot of fun. It was beautiful to to watch, and I'm maybe oversimplifying it to say that there wasn't a point to the movie because there was a point to the movie. But the the narrative and the plot sometimes just kind of sit on the back burner while you experience 1969 Los Angeles, and that's all for the better because Quentin Tarantino's filmmaking in this particular instance is perfectly suited for it. And I haven't even started talking about the acting yet because Scott, I don't think we've gotten the chance to talk about my favorite actor. Uh, in the business on a movie review yet. And that's Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, and, and to inter- in, interject for a second, yeah. I was stunned to look at his IMDb after this and discover this is his first movie in four years. This is the first yep. movie he's been in since The Revenant. Since The Revenant, absolutely. And, you know, as, as much as I like Leo's updates about his, you know, wildlife and nonprofit, I, I do still prefer to see him in movies on the big screen. And so I was overjoyed, of course, to, to see him coming back. One of the main reasons I was excited about this film, on top of the fact that it's a Tarantino movie. And, you know, he's excellent. I think that we'll get to the, you know, the meta narrative of the movie probably at some point here. But I think that throughout the casting list here, so I've already mentioned Leo, who I think is great in this movie, um, but also Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie. I'm not sure that there's a, you know, movie that's been better cast. This year, and I'd sit down and think about whether or not I think there's a movie longer going, you know, going further back that's been better cast. And, you know, mentioning Brad Pitt there, I would be remiss not to center the attention of the acting on him because he's amazing. I was saying after I watched it to you that I don't think that he's had a good performance in a movie since Moneyball in 2011. And that that being said, you know, he hasn't had that many major roles since Moneyball. So it's not like he's, you know, swinging and missing all that often. But it's still been eight years since we've seen Brad Pitt at the height of his powers. And I don't know if Brad Pitt's ever been more at the height of his powers than in this movie. He is absolutely magnetic in this role as Cliff Booth. He stole the show in a way that I thought that he wouldn't because Leo's in this movie and Margot Robbie's in this movie. And yet still Cliff Booth is the, is the star of the, of the show for me. Um, we'll talk at length about the uh, shenanigans to some, to some extent that he gets up to and what happens to him over the course of the film. But He's absolutely amazing. Brad Pitt's back. I'm even more excited about Ad Astra, which is coming out later this year now. And I just can't say enough positive things about this movie. There, of course, is uh, the ending, which we will talk at great length about, which um, is the only, you know, the last 30 minutes is, you know, you remember it's a Tarantino movie. If the first two hours and 10 minutes confuse you at all about whether Quentin Tarantino was directing it, the last 30 minutes remind you of it. And it's off the wall, crazy you know, the movie theater that I was in, which was only about half full, was absolutely losing their mind. And for good reason, because the last half hour is it's everything that you could hope for a Quentin Tarantino movie, probably. Yeah, I mean, Scott, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Tarantino's movies is that they have a genuine love for movies. And even though he is a master storyteller, there's always this sort of joy in his films, uh, you know, th- this sort of like, 
look, mom, I'm making a movie sort of joy um, in all of his movies. And like, you know, the experimenting with the different things that he can do just because he's making a movie. And I think The Hateful Eight, which was his last movie, of course, it it was my least favorite of his movies. I, I don't think it was a bad film, but I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as I hoped. And I think that was because he really got away from the that joy a little bit. And I think that it was a much meaner and nastier film than he's ever made. And, you know, obviously he's known for his brutal violence and rough language and all of this kind of stuff. But again, there's always that sort of twinkle in his eye when he's making the movies that I think makes that the violence and the the language and all of that a lot easier to swallow um, than in another movie. And I didn't think that that was really the case for The Hateful Eight. So I think it's wonderful that he has rebounded with this movie, uh, which is really kind of a lovely film, which is not really an, an adjective you, you might be able to describe Tar- a lot of Tarantino's films with. In my letterbox review, I compared the structure of the movie to Matt Bellamy's guitar solo from the Muse song uh, Madness. And I think what I mean by that is, if you listen to the solo in Madness, it's created by this guy who you know that he can just absolutely wail on the guitar and, uh, you know, dazzle you with all of his skills. But it doesn't really fit the song um, for him to just go all out in that solo. So uh, he it's it's a much more stripped back solo because he, he recognizes there's power in restraint sometimes. But then at the end of the solo, there's a, a bit of a like five to ten second riff where he just kind of, uh, you know, he does go all out and he's like, look, I'm still Matt Bellamy no matter what. And I think that's exactly the way that this movie um, proceeds. And you've you've already described that the way that. It does kind of meander along for you know a large chunk of its its long running time, but then in that last 20, 30 minutes, right, he's got to remind you that he's Quentin Tarantino, and I think that some you know some people aren't going to go with that ending because to some extent, yeah, it, it is a little bit asynchronous with what is going on in the rest of the film. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll talk more about that when we get into spoilers. You, you question what the point of the movie is, and I know that you you understand, you know that there are, um, you know, there, there's a lot of different themes which we'll get into. But I was actually pretty uh, pretty touched by some of the themes in this movie. Like I found myself relating in a way to to the to what Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters are ex- experiencing in this movie, and we'll we'll talk about exactly maybe why that is. Um, and it's it, and one thing interesting about that is that one thing that I didn't necessarily think about until even today, which is why I'm glad we did wait to record the podcast today, was they're going and experiencing very different things, which I think yeah. makes it all the more interesting um, because they are juxtaposed right next to each other. And it's not something that I really thought about until after. But I think the other the other thing that really resonated with me as far as the messages of the movie um, is this really is a love letter to cinema and a testament to the power of cinema in, in some regards. And, you know, I talked about, I talk about how there's always that joy in Tarantino's movies of, uh, you know, sort of unrestrained glee at just the fact that he is making a movie and, and the things that he can do in making a movie, even after all this time, even after he's established himself as he has, um, he still, you know, takes takes pride in the fact that he's making a movie and takes pleasure in that fact. And I think this movie, you know, in Glorious Bastards, certainly cinema was a huge part of the what was going on in that movie. But I think this movie is is sort of his love letter to movies um, in a way. And he he kind of sets up in again in that first passage of the movie, the more restrained part of the movie, the more restrained chunk of the movie. Um, 
he kind of shows how cinema has sort of this restorative and redemptive power in the lives of his characters. And then I think when we get to that last 30 minutes, he kind of strips back this sort of meta layer to say, okay, you know, I've showed you how cinema has affected the characters. Uh, I've showed you what cinema can do in the life of these characters. Now look at what I can do with my movie. Um, And, you know, again, I think some people are going to go with it. Some people aren't. I did go with it uh, just because I think it is set up really well throughout the movie where we're going, even though at times it may feel jarring. I think um, he does do a good job of, of setting things up uh, again uh, without saying too much at this point uh, because of spoilers. But yeah, of course you're trying really hard. You're, you're trying really hard to talk about it already. And I I understand. Yeah. But, um, (laughs) but I, uh, you know, I, of course I love this movie, right? How, how am I not going to love a movie that was described as Quentin Tarantino's Linklater film, right? I mean, that's just so many buzzwords for me in a sentence. And I think that I really enjoyed the movie in the moment and I've enjoyed it a lot more since coming out of the theater. And I think uh, for now, I think we can uh, move on now, Scott, to the performances. Um, Yes, please. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think this movie has such a star-studded cast. You know, it's great to see that uh, Tarantino can basically grab whoever he wants in his movie, uh, movies nowadays. And I think, you know, that that's clearly exemplified by the top three names on this bill here. And we'll talk about each one of them. But let's start with Leonardo DiCaprio. I guess if you'd had if you have to um, pigeonhole someone as the lead character in this movie, it is his Rick Dalton. Uh, Scott, what did you think about this possibly uh, meta sort of introspective performance uh, by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as this aging actor? Yeah, you know, I think that just to briefly talk about the whole whole cast, like I mentioned earlier, I think that not only is this a meta casting for DiCaprio, I think Brad Pitt's a meta casting too. Maybe Margot Robbie <laughs> Probably, uh, yeah. as as well. I think all three of them are there. Whether it was intended or not, I'm definitely reading some some meta narrative about these actors' own lives. So why don't we start with Leo? You, you know, you mentioned it that he hasn't done a movie since since winning the Academy Award for Best Actor for The Revenant. But I think he's I think he's spectacular in this movie. I think that. You know, I mentioned it was a perfect casting, and I think because of that, and because of the kind of director that Quentin Tarantino is, I mean, we often talk about how, you know, actors, you know, really give it their all, and sometimes they're, and are oftentimes the best parts of the movies that we watch, especially with movies that are, you know, maybe a little bit weaker in the in the script or narrative department. But I mean, I think Quentin Tarantino is one of those auteur uh, standout directors that really does draw the best out of the acting talent that he works with. And I think that Mm -hmm. as awesome as Leonardo DiCaprio already is, not only has Tarantino crafted a role for him that he's able to really sink his teeth into, I think that the direction and the, of the character of Rick Dalton and also the, I'm sure his direction of Leonardo DiCaprio uh, as well. I think it really just maximizes the potential for this role, which I will say just for comparison's sake, I think, is has lower potential than Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth. We'll get to that in a second. But I still think that they really do make the most of this. We we saw in the trailers what this role was going to be like. It's like you mentioned, this aging Hollywood actor who had this really famous Western TV show and is now kind of, in some ways, you know, being bastardized by the network that he kind of owes his loyalty or owes, uh, yeah, owes his loyalty to in, in terms of who made him a star. And he's seeing his career in decline uh, kind of from the very outside of the movie, the opening scene even is is that is is a conversation between him and Al Pacino about how you know really his career is is taking a downturn and it may not ever bounce back. And I think that throughout the whole course of the movie, you get him really wrestling with this fact. And you know, you can call it depression, you can call it whatever you want, but ultimately he's having to come to terms with his you know his 
acting career's mortality and what's coming to that. And I think that as great as Leonardo DiCaprio is as a standalone character, I think his best scenes are ones with other people. I mean, I don't know how much detail we're going to go into the the supporting role of the girl whose name I'm actually not sure who who plays Oh, yeah, um, fellow actress. The uh, the actress's name is Julia Butters. Yeah, so Julia Butters plays this eight year old, nine year old girl who Leonardo DiCaprio's character Rick Dalton has a couple interactions with, and I think those are Rick's standout scenes in terms of the emotional weight and gravity of those scenes, and where you really see DiCaprio's depth of character shine out and performance shine out the most. Of course, again, referencing the ending and only alluding to it, he has an amazing moment in the final 20 to 30 minutes as well, that is stand out for a completely different, but even up to that point, right? He is the main character. I think that it's really a co-lead performance. We'll see how they classify them come award season with, between him and Brad Pitt. But I, I really can't praise it enough. I, I don't think this is as powerful a performance as something like the Revenant or even to an extent, the Wolf of wall street or any of the other standout Leonardo DiCaprio roles. I mean, I'm of course partial to the departed, but I, I think that as awesome as the performance is, because he, I think he might be ultimately overshadowed by Brad Pitt, and I think there's a case to make that Margot Robbie might overshadow him as well, I think that it's it's a tough one for Leo because he's amazing. He's absolutely amazing in this movie, but he's not uh, he's not top of the list, I don't think. And that's not to say anything about him, but to say something about this movie. Yeah, I think it's it is a really fantastic performance. Um, I don't have like the same reverence for DiCaprio uh, as you do, but I, you know, obviously I understand and appreciate all that he can do as an actor. And I think we get to see a lot of that on display in this character uh, because the character does experience such a wide range of emotions throughout the movie, but they're always believable. And I think uh, DiCaprio makes them believable, whether it's you know when he is shedding some tears, which he does, you know, throughout several times in the movies and and actually you know the tears take on a different uh tenor in certain scenes you know depending on what emotion he's actually expressing but also you know the anger uh at the, and, and and you know this was kind of when, when i talked about the part that i related to a little bit i think the self-scolding he, right he's ang- he's angry at himself because he knows that he has the skills uh to to be successful uh but maybe he's abused the skills, maybe he's neglected them, or maybe, you know, when the moment comes, he's just not uh, performing. And I think that, um, you know, whether you're an actor, whatever industry you're in, whatever, you know, your your career pursuit is, uh, I think that's something you can, that's a feeling that you can relate to. And that I certainly related to that feeling of, you know, I know that I can do the job great. uh, But uh, maybe, partially because of the way the industry is, maybe partially because of things that I've done. Um, I'm not getting the opportunity that uh, I, I think that I uh, deserve or, or can make the most of. And I think that that's what makes it so satisfying, right? When eventually he is able to, uh, you know, tap into those skills, uh, the full power of those skills um, that he knows that he has. And, you know, we, we see that scene in the trailer, right? When when Julia Butters whispers to him, you know, this is, that was the best acting uh, that I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, it is, it's an affecting moment because of what we've seen DiCaprio's character go through throughout the movie. Um, But I think he still gives the character such a a nice light touch, right? It's perfectly pitched for a Tarantino character um, because, you know, he, he has a serious arc that he's going through, but 
there's there's a there's a tongue in cheek nature still about the character and about his you know Texas accent, um, and you know just the the way that he carries himself. Um, you never take him too seriously, which I think you know is important because this is uh, you know th- there's a lot of comedy in this film. It it does have a, a largely comedic tone throughout a lot of uh, the movie, and I think DiCaprio, yeah, it's it's a perfectly pitched performance for. Uh, this movie. And like you said, Tarantino gets the best out of his actors. And this is the second movie of the last three where he's gotten a wonderful performance out of DiCaprio, albeit uh, a much different one uh, here than he played in Django Unchained. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, why don't we talk about then who we think uh, we both agree here is probably the standout in this very excellent cast. And that is Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, who is Rick Dalton's stuntman, of course. And uh, you know, ha- has on arguably seen his career decline even more than Rick. You know, he's he's not even really we, we really only very briefly at one point in the movie actually see him doing any actual stunt work. So, Scott, what what is it about this performance of Brad Pitt's that made it so great for you? Yeah, I guess first off, to zoom out because we referenced that the meta narrative around Leonardo DiCaprio's role. And then I also said that I thought that Brad Pitt's role was similarly a meta-narrative. So to then go back to talk about DiCaprio and then to frame the conversation for Brad Pitt's character, obviously, you know, Leo hitting someone who hasn't done a movie in four years, who did reach the pinnacle of his career, uh, you know, whether you think think it's his best performance, I think that's probably neither here nor there. It's it's not the best performance for me. But of course, most actors, especially actors like Leo, want to get that statue, want to get that Oscar and getting that, coming off that and then taking a little bit of time off. It's not that he was in decline, but that he was looking down from the mountaintop. And so I think there's some meta narrative around, you know, Leo, if you don't get this right, maybe you are this character that you're playing. And so I think that that's really, really well done from a story making and a narrative crafting perspective. And I think that it's even just as if not better done with Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, who I totally agree, although maybe not as explicitly uh, on the nose stated in the movie is but definitely alluded to and you can see it kind of portrayed in these moments with Cliff is someone who's seen his career decline much more than Rick Dalton's career has and someone who hasn't done work for many years now and, and has essentially just become, you know, the the driver for Rick Dalton for, you know, for Rick Dalton and, you know, the handyman around the house for him, which is a, obviously a huge demotion from being or a stuntman for the biggest actor in Hollywood at the time, the biggest Westerner in Hollywood. And I think that that decline is something that that Brad Pitt, maybe not to the same extent, right? But referencing my point about the fact that I don't think that he's been, he's had a strong performance since 2011. I think that that's something that in some ways may mirror Brad Pitt's career a little bit. And, you know, similar to that referencing for Leo's uh, role, like if you screw it up, you are this character. Uh, Brad Pitt, if you screw it up, maybe that's confirmation that your career is kind of over. But he does the opposite and he absolutely knocks it out of the park. I was going to make a joke there alluding to something that is a big spoiler, but decided against it. And I just think that this performance is excellent. I, I will be honest that I'm, I have not, I've not been as thorough with Brad Pitt's filmography as some other people. But for me, it's one of his best performances, if not his best performance. I think that if you put them, I don't, I don't think that they probably will. I think he'll probably end up in a supporting actor category, but if they're doing it right, if he's in the best actor category with Leo, obviously we haven't seen the rest of the performances that are coming out in the next five months, but He's got to be the favorite right now for best actor uh, come come award season for me. This is an absolutely spectacular role for a large part of the movie. He's the silent person that you're learning a lot about from the people around him, from other people telling stories about him or these. You know, he has one kind of memory or dream. It's not a daydream, but a memory sequence where he flashes back to something that's happened in the past 
And, you know, and it's these moments where you learn a lot about this character and you have to kind of surmise a lot about it. And it's just so cleverly and smartly done, in my opinion. I think it's the best written character in the movie from that perspective. And Brad Pitt absolutely crushes it. I think that he plays the highs and the lows really well. And in some ways, the highs and the lows are a really narrow scope because one thing that we learned about Cliff Booth over the course of this film is that not very much, if anything, rattles this guy. And I think that the stoicism of Brad Pitt in this role is excellent, excellent, excellent. And he just really hits all the right notes. And he has his grand finale at the end, which, you know, may be one of the scenes of the year. You know, this kind, this performance, in a way, gets back to, I think, probably... Uh, what prompted Brad Pitt's rise to stardom in the first place, which is just that that magnetic charm that he can bring to a role, maybe that he's not always allowed to bring or, or hasn't always been given great opportunities to bring in, in more recent movies, uh, but that he absolutely can bring and that made him a star in, you know, movies like Fight Club and yep. uh, Ocean's Eleven, uh, you know, this this type of stuff where he was really able to show a lot of personality. Uh, and he does that here. And I think it goes well with the character. I think that he is this charming guy. And because of that, I think there is sort of a creeping desire in this character, whether he'll admit it or not, uh, to sort of be the hero, right? To be uh, the guy like like Rick Dalton, even, that, that people recognize. Um, He's the real life Rick Dalton. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we see different opportunities you know, his his sort of arc in the movie, whether it's him with with Margaret Qualley's character, or what happens at the end uh, is him sort of seizing upon these different opportunities in his own life to try and be at the forefront. Right. Uh, be the hero. Um, and I think that uh, he he plays on his his natural charm and, and good looks and all of that uh, really well in this performance. Um, he's he's I, I, I especially love um there's a there's a long scene uh, where he goes to the Spawn family ranch, um, and I think the the droll nature that he uh, brings to this performance um, it is really great because it, it really keeps the the other members of the ranch really on their toes here because he's giving off this vibe like he's going to be really friendly and uh, you know that he's somebody that they can be welcoming to. But then, you know, there's this growing suspicion and, you know, he never breaks character, right? He never sort of breaks from uh, mm -hmm. that friendly facade that uh, he's been putting on the whole time. A at the same time, he's he's probing deeper. He's inquiring into what's really going on um, here at this ranch. And ultimately, you know, when he is when he is finally, you know, sort of confronted or or stopped and said, hey, like, you know, you need to quit messing around here. Uh, he's not afraid to resort to this sort of darker side of his character that, like you, you know, like you noted, um, we get into a little bit with with his backstory and, uh, you know, maybe some things mm -hmm. that have gone on to his past. I think wisely, like you said, they don't they don't go too deeply into that. They just sort of hint at it and then allow what you see on screen in the in the you know narrative of the film to inform your beliefs about what really happened in the past. Yeah, it's so critical that this character have an air of mystery, I think. And yeah. so. Do they heavily allude to certain things being true about his backstory? Of course. But the fact, but I think that even that with that heavy illusion, it's important that you don't go all the way with it for this particular character. And I just think it's a really well-crafted character. And I think that I, I do want to say that I think I want to add one nuance to your comment out here. Is I don't actually think that he wants to be a, a hero, but I think that he has desired to be an anti-hero, which is yeah, kind of what Rick Dalton is in the movies too. Because I don't think... I never got the vibe that this guy wanted to save the day. What this guy wanted to do is just kind of be a badass and, and get what he wanted. And I think that's he ends up being an anti-hero because of the particular things that happen in this movie. But I don't know if it's any particular intention to 
be the hero. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think a, a moment that I think about is when he picks up Margaret Qualley's character, Pussycat, in the car, mm-hmm. and she sort of propositions him, right? And his response is not to turn her down, uh, you know, like like you would expect the quote unquote hero to do, but uh, mm-hmm. he's like, "How old are you?" You know, sort of implying that. If in, if in fact she was of age, you know, he, he might partake of, of what she's offering. Um, of course, we find out that she's not. Um, and he, you know, he chooses not to uh, because <laughs> to, to quote him. Well, I won't I won't say his exact line, but because it's better experienced in person. Uh, but the line that he he gives about why he won't go any further is is uh, one of the more amusing lines in the film that because of that antihero nature, there's an element of surprise about his performance that is really key to that Spawn family ranch scene and partic- in particular also that the last 30 minutes, the conclusion of the movie, um, that surprise, that element of surprise and mystery about the character leads to some really surprising and sort of wonderful moments. All right, Scott, let's talk about the other, uh, m- you know, main cast member here, and that's Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate. Of course, this performance in this character um, has sp- sparked a lot of debate, uh, you know, leading up to this movie and in the wake of this movie being released. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, that's something to be expected because of uh, the role that uh, this, you know, that Sharon Tate, you know, she's the one, she's the real life person that we, uh, I mean, we see, we do see Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen as well, but she, in terms of the main characters, she's the only one who's a real life person. Uh, and obviously what happened to her in our real life uh, is something you know, very tragic. And for us, especially for an irreverent director like Tarantino to take it on, I think was always going to prompt a lot of questions about how, you know, how she's been used in the film, but also whether she even should have been used in the film at all. Um, so Scott, what did you think ultimately about the treatment that Tarantino did give to this real life historical figure and, and how uh, Margot Robbie portrayed that role? Yeah, I think this is probably one of the more and this entire thread of having this character. I mean, nothing about Ro- Margot. Ro- this has nothing to do with Margot Robbie. But like, I think the overall thread of having Sharon Tate in this film, like be the I be like the icon that you can point to and be like, you know, what? this is how you know that this is 1969 L.A. And and that entire thread like through line with the Manson family is one of those things that I think I feel a little bit mixed about. It's, it's probably one of the things that I'm a little bit. Uh, gives me a little bit more pause than most, if not all of the other components of the movie. And I think that's just because, you know, it's a, it's a tricky topic to navigate. And I understand that he, that Tarantino wants to evoke 1969 LA. And, and, you know, this is something that, I mean, I don't know if he specifically wanted to evoke that year, but this era of Hollywood. Uh, And I think that choosing this particular quote unquote icon of that era definitely sends a very particular kind of message. It, I think it gets across that message fairly well. Uh, I, my thing is that it, it wasn't necessary, I think is the question I ask. Maybe whether it was necessary or not ultimately isn't, like, doesn't, doesn't make me lean positively or negatively because I'm, I'm not negative on the inclusion. I just wonder if it was necessary to have gone this route to you know, communicate this specific message that he was trying to do and and give the feel of this particular era, which is ultimately, I think, what he's trying to do with it. And that being said, I think that Margot Robbie is spectacular. I think that the way that Tarantino uses her is very, in a very particular way. You know, she is, she is a main role, but she is a supporting role. And she only has certain scenes because a large, large, large majority of the time we are with Cliff uh, or Rick or both of them. And so it's important to remember that in many ways, this character is 
part of the scenery and part of the background of the movie. And I can understand why some people's reactions might be might that might give them pause as it might feel like he is, you know, doing less justice to female characters. I know that there were some problems with I didn't see the hateful eight, but I know that some people had some problems with treatment of a specific female character in that movie. And so I don't know if there's any sort of lingering uh, bad taste in people's mouths that people might have latched onto this particular character. But I think that that's the point right? this movie uses this character and uses this backstory as a part of the narrative, but is not the narrative itself. And so I think it's an important thing to put context around. And I think that Margot Robbie plays the role really well. You know, Tarantino to solidify the particular point that I think he's trying, that I think he's trying to make with this particular uh, character, with this particular narrative is, is one that, you know, shows the golden age of Hollywood quite literally, right? Margot Robbie, you know, gold tinted in many ways, like her skin tone, her hair color, everything about her. She's uh, as gorgeous as I imagine that Tarantino remembers this era by. And so in that, in that sense, again, to reference the perfect casting that I think that she is starry eyed wonder of being in the movies that you talk about Tarantino having when he makes the movie, I think is perfectly embodied by Margot Robbie's performance in this. You know, you see kind of the, the main scene that she gets in terms of the longest amount of time in one sitting that we spend with her is when she goes to a movie theater to literally just watch herself in a movie and I think that that is uh, speaks volumes and is really the kind of tone that Tarantino is really trying to set uh, of the film. Of course, there's another element, of course, to the to this plot line and that is her relation to the Manson family. And um, I mean, we'll we'll get into more detail when we talk about the Manson family about that. But I, I do think it's a it's good casting. I think that there may be some pause and some question marks about whether this particular narrative was the only way to communicate this particular point or set this particular tone for this movie. Cause I think that there are understandable pauses to be had here, but for me, I think it worked, but it is one of those parts of the movie that I've had to think a little bit about and come to terms with a little bit more than other things that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, going into this movie, of course, there's reason to give you pause. The fact that this character was depicted in the movie and you know, what's Tarantino going to do here. But I think Tarantino yeah, I, there were some some qualms about the hateful eight. Um, you know, I've I've actually only seen that film one time, so I'd have to go back and watch it uh, another time to to learn whether it's justified or not. But I think Tarantino in general does have a really good track record with writing female characters. I mean, if you think about The Bride, if you think about Jackie Brown, if you think about Shoshana Dreyfus, these are incredibly memorable and well rounded female characters. Uh, and so I think. In that extent, I had to, to that extent, I had less worries about Tarantino taking on uh, Sharon Tate than I would maybe a, of a lesser director with with not as good of a track record. And I think he does a wonderful job. You know, when I when I talked about how I was touched by certain elements of the movie, I think that her Sharon Tate's arc uh, is maybe chief among those. And I, I do think it's necessary to have this particular character, particular person depicted in the movie, because I think so much of the emotional impact uh, of, number one, this theme of the magic of movies. uh, And, you know, as you mentioned, this run really wonderful scene where she goes to the theater to watch her own film and she's, uh, you know, her face is lighting up as she's seeing the reactions of other people and, you know, just seeing herself there on that screen. you know, for, for someone of her age and, and someone who's a rising star is, you know, wonderful and transformative. And I think that's the sort of, uh, you know, power that Tarantino wants us to believe cinema has. And I so I think 
you know, it's important for that emotional dimension. And it's also important, I think, for what happens at the ending. And, and so I think it's, it is important and necessary that we do use this real life person, Sharon Tate, because I think because we, you know, what we know about this person going into the movie is what makes what we see in the movie more emotional because we know the truth about what happened to Sharon Tate in real life, that she was uh, killed by the, the Manson family, of course. Um, I think that's what adds the emotional heft to some of these scenes. And I, you know, I, I really credit, give Tarantino a lot of credit because I think that he sort of like to, to, to mention another Margot Robbie movie, like sort of like, uh, I, Tanya really changed the way that we think about Tanya Harding as not just this person who was involved in this really unseemly incident, but as, you know, a real, a real human being who was involved in this unseemly incident, but she, because of a lot of factors in her own life and the cycles of abuse that she went through, uh, you know, really caused everyone to think about Tanya Harding in a new way. I think we do the same thing with, uh, Sharon Tate, perhaps not to the same, with the same depth uh, as we did in I, Tanya, because of course that movie was about Tanya. And I think, as you've said, Sharon Tate is a supporting character in this movie. I don't think, uh, it would be right to really go that deep on this character. Um, but I think, what he does get right is that we do see this character in a light that we're not familiar with because most people are familiar with, you know, maybe the fact that, of course, the fact that she was killed by the Manson family, maybe the fact that she was married to Roman Polanski. But outside of that, we don't really know much about who she was as a human being and and an actress. And maybe we don't, again, maybe we don't get too deeply into that, but simply depicting her in this way in the movie, I think, goes a long way and, and is powerful uh, in sort of reframing the narrative around Sharon Tate. So I thought that, um, you know, I did have, uh, for the few reservations that I had about how he was going to treat this character, I think he really did knock it out of the park. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I, I think that, especially with Margot Robbie's performance, I think it's really, really strong. And I think that what he was trying to do with it, he did really well. Uh, my, I still understand maybe some reservations about ultimately the core of what he was trying to do and using it to accomplish what he was trying to do, if that makes sense. But obviously, it still worked for me. But I, I understand people's uh, maybe potential hesitations around parts of it. Sure. Yeah. Um, Scott, before we get on into like the themes and the spoilers a little bit, uh, let's briefly talk about some of the supporting cast. You know, there is a big and star-studded supporting cast in this movie. With that being said, not a lot of these people have a ton of screen time. It, you know, it really even Margot Robbie, right, who's third build, um, she, you know, is probably on screen for about twenty minutes. Um, and I think that, you know, the, when you get further down the bill, you get even less and less screen time. I guess the person who probably has the fourth most screen time would be Margaret Qualley, who I've mentioned a few times as playing uh, Pussycat, this member of the Manson family. But Al Pacino, you've mentioned him as well. He pops up in a couple scenes as a producer. Mike Moe shows up as Bruce Lee in a couple of amusing scenes. Um, Kurt Russell has a brief cameo. Bruce Dern. Uh, Scott Anyone else in the supporting cast that stood out to you? We mentioned Julia Butters as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Julia Butters and Mike Moe would be the two that stand out for me the most. But I, that being said, that does a disservice because I think that all these people in their little moments that you've just listed. Yeah. I think I don't even know if you mentioned Timothy Oliphant or not. Sorry if you did. No, yeah. Um, and Luke Perry as well. Yeah, I mean, RIP. I do wonder something like Mike, like Mike Moe's performance here as Bruce Lee, which as great as Brad Pitt was in that scene. I think Mike Mo might have just pipped him in it. I think he was a little bit more, um, even more magnetic than than Achilles himself. And I think that uh, it was pretty spectacular. I mean, we saw a good chunk of that scene in one of the trailers, but it was just as satisfying getting to see that scene 
you know, in the full cut of the movie itself when he's, you know, giving his little spiel and monologue about how his hands are registered deadly weapons. Uh, and it was just a, that was a fantastic scene. He does pop up only briefly in the, in a couple other points in the movie. Cause that is his really his only scene uh, of any note, but it was an amazing scene. You know, Julia Butters has talked about that already. She has a couple fantastic scenes with Leonardo DiCaprio, where I think that she really, sets the tone for what her career might be in 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, we're probably going to have to wait for, of course, her her best performances. But that's okay because, I, you know, if this is any early indication, she's someone to watch over over the next decade or so because, you know, she clearly has, has the chops or maybe she was just cast perfectly. Who knows? Maybe this is exactly who she is in real life. I don't know. But she definitely, one, puts in a good performance herself as this very precocious uh, eight-year-old actress who is just a, a piece of work in, 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 in many ways, really kind of te- teaching Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton a, a lesson, but then having the scene where, you know, in many ways, inspiring him to, to be the actor that he could be. Uh, and ultimately, as maybe Tarantino gets the best out of Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Julia Butters and Trudy Fraser, I believe is the, is the character's name, gets the best out of Rick Dalton, which I think is, is maybe some funny meta narrative there as well. I don't know. Bruce Dern, who I think someone you mentioned when we were talking off air, I think puts in a, a quality three or four minutes on screen. I'll let you maybe talk about more. I thought Damian Lewis's cameo as Steve McQueen was just bizarre. Very strange cameo. Weird, weird casting in general. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was very strange. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else that comes to mind. I mean, we haven't really talked about Margaret Qualley because I think her character is a little bit of an oddball. Uh, didn't stand out for me in a positive or a negative way. I think she's fine. And I'm just trying to think if there's anyone else that I'm forgetting. There's a lot of recognizable faces, again, just scattered throughout the movie. Like at the yeah. Manson camp, we see like we see Lena Dunham. We see like uh, yeah. Maya Hawke. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask Butler. you if you're excited about the Elvis movie now after seeing Austin Butler as Tex. I think he does a pretty decent job with what he's given here. Yeah, no, I agree, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I echo what you said about some of these performances. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, the two that I would point to that you didn't mention well bruce dern of course you did you did mention him but uh he's wonderful you know it's great to see him still going and i think no one is better at playing a a grouchy old man and this definitely one of the funnier scenes in the movie where this interaction that he has with cliff when cliff goes and wakes him up from his nap and the sort of uh dialogue that goes on between them is is pretty classic tarantino i think you know a lot of the movie eschews maybe some more of the more flashy dialogue that we we know tarantino for and again i think that that's because it suits the 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 restrained tone the relaxed tone suits the movie more but he still shows off a little bit and i think this is one scene um where he shows off in in a very comedic way and yeah. i did enjoy and, I, the and I think that well and to that point too i think that it's it's ma- again we talk about master storytelling over the course of the whole movie but this is a, a, a i think a microcosm of that when you know, you have this really long scene, like you talked about already, kind of leading up where he picks Margaret Qualley's, uh, is it Pussycat up from, mm-hmm. you know, picks her up, gives her, gives her right out there. You know, you have this scene where they're going back and forth in the car. You get out of the, you know, you get to the ranch, you get out of the car, you have these, all these conversations, you know, this really long lead in at definitely making you think that they've killed this guy. If you don't know the backstory, of course. Yeah. Um, which I did not. And then you open the door and he's very much alive and you're like, well, that's, that's a twist. <laughs> It is. Um, but And Scott, I did enjoy the performance of Margaret Qualley. Maybe it's just because I uh, am a fan of her from one of my favorite shows, The Leftovers, where, of course, she had a huge role mm-hmm. um, as Jill. But I think uh, there's there's something about, you, you know, you said the character is an oddball, and I agree. I think she portrays it well, though, sort of 
you know, she's flirting with Brad Pitt and, uh, you know, tr- trying to get him to uh, pick her up uh, at various times throughout the movie and bending over and all these revealing um, angles and everything. Uh, but there's also this sort of like wild look in her eyes, right? Where you think uh, maybe something's not right. Like this isn't just your normal like girl who's looking for a good time, right? She's there. There's maybe, maybe there's something more going on here. And I think in that scene you're talking about, right, where there's a lot of suspense about, uh, you know, do what have they done here? You know, has, have they killed this guy? You know, what's, what's going on at this ranch? Um, I think that that, uh, you know, suspense to her character, that p- possible dark edge to her character contributes nicely to that suspense. Yep. Uh, okay, Scott, let's get into now spoilers. Um, so if you haven't seen the film yet, um, skip ahead a little bit, check the time codes. Kudos um, to you. If you haven't seen this film yet and you're listening to this 50 minutes deep. Yeah, really? <laughs> um, but Let's let's get in. I, I guess the best place to, to go is the ending, um, of course. And yeah. it is, you know, a, a, a part of the movie that has divided audiences. And that's because, you know, we have a fairly realistic two hours and then we get, again, a very Tarantino last half hour with complete with graphic violence and, you know, revisionist history to some degree. Of course, Sharon Tate to, ends to up some degree. Sur- <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I'll talk about in a second why I somewhat uh well i have a few reservations about using the phrase revisionist history but um sharon tate survives the film um and you know the movie ends with her welcoming rick dalton rick dalton into her house for a drink after he has killed the members of the man he he and and cliff have uh, killed cliff yeah mostly cliff and the dog and cliff's dog um have killed the members of the manson family who presumably were you know on their way to kill sharon tate before they uh, had a change of heart about who their target was going to be. Uh, so, Scott, what did you think about this sort of fairy tale ending to uh, what is otherwise a pretty, you know, uh, stream of consciousness, uh, you know, realistic evocation of old Hollywood, at least as realistic as as we know. Obviously, we didn't live through this period. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the first, you know, this being the most Richard Link Linklaterary movie that Tarantino has made, and you know, when we say that to those maybe who. Or maybe maybe the metaphor, the reference was lost on some people, which is totally fair because I wasn't really exposed to Richard Linklater movies until recently and didn't really know what that meant, uh, or at least had an experience with that meant. And I think that what that means is that like whether or not what's being created is is real or like truly happened, there's this element of at the very least realism and uncanny valiness that you can't tell um, what happened from what didn't or from the fictionalized version of what happened apart. What happens at the twenty to thirty minute mark? Uh, left in the movie that is is that uncanny valley realistic portrayal of 1969 la gets completely blown out of the water when the manson family or the people who the people who are members of the manson family who came to cielo drive uh, in real life of course brutally brutally murdering sharon tate instead having after this you know very aggressive interaction with rick with a drunk rick dalton uh, i think decides to go kill Rick instead of uh, who they were told to kill by Charles Manson. Um, And I think that that element of the movie in what then happens when, you know, they have, they storm into the house and you have Rick Dalton, who's in the pool in the back getting just, I mean, dog ass drunk in the, in the the pool uh, with while Cliff is having an acid trip in the living room, feeding his dog and they barge in, barge in on Cliff. And what eventually takes place is, this 
brutal murder of the Manson family members who had uh, come calling on Rick and Cliff. And I will be the first to say that as much as I was entertained and loved the first two hours and 10 minutes of this movie, the last 20 to 30 minutes are about 20 to 30 times more entertaining (laughs) And, and like absolute Tarantino masterclass in filmmaking uh, of what you expect. And, you know, if another director did a scene like this, I think everyone would just be horrified. The reviews would not be mixed. Everyone would be like, what the hell? How could he possibly do this? This is awful. Um, But it's Tarantino. It's Tarantino and what he does and what he is able to craft after two hours and 10 minutes of a very different kind of story and filmmaking. He reverts uh, to his mean, so to speak finds that Tarantino specific magic and gives you puts on a show for you. I've really been wrestling hard with an argu- the argument that this is asynchronous and out of line with the rest of the movie. Not not mostly not from a thematic sense and not from a, you know, tying up loose ends with narrative arcs. It's not it's not a factor of that. It's a factor of what I was talking about earlier. You have these 2 hours and 10 minutes of un undiscern like indiscernible realism to these last half hour, which we all know to be completely factually inaccurate and not what actually happened in 1969, which is what this movie had been leading up to with Sharon Tate, with the Manson family, alluding to this climactic event in the life of Sharon Tate, which we'll get to in a second, has o- like overshadowed the rest of her her life and you know being a victim of the Manson family. Uh, And having that happen overshadowed the potential that Quentin Tarantino shows that she had in this movie and that she had in real life before Quentin Tarantino came along to show other people that. And I think in that sense, Scott, and one of the things that we talked at length about last night when we were just talking about the movie is that this movie goes out of its way to show everything else about Sharon Tate's life and showing that Holly, what Hollywood was and maybe what Hollywood could have continued to be if not for people like the Manson family and, and their actions and killing old Hollywood and kill, killing the golden age of Hollywood. And, you know, at the end, he gets this revenge fantasy of killing the Manson family with Cliff Booth in an incredibly entertaining fashion and saving uh, the golden age of Hollywood by waving his magic, his director's wand and leaving Sharon Tate alive. Scott, it's something that I've really wrestled with. I think it's a really interesting ending to the movie. I was incredibly entertained by it. And I will say that we haven't even talked about this, but Rick Dalton maybe gets the most satisfying moment in the finale. Chekhov's and that is flamethrower. Yeah. Chekhov's flamethrower when he torches. Uh, I forget exactly which one he torched. Um, was it Margaret Qualley? No, well, no, because she doesn't play a part in that final scene. I don't. That's believe. true. She doesn't. Yeah. Do he was, torches a member of the Manson family. It was one family. of the women. Yeah. Yeah. One of the women in the Manson family gets quite literally roasted by his flamethrower in the pool. And that was incredibly satisfying and entertaining as well. But it was, it was Tarantino. It was phantasmagoric violence. It was everything you'd expect Tarantino to be. And then you, when the dust settles, you have to think about what that means for the rest of the movie and how as much as the rest of the movie felt very realistic and very much like it very well could have happened in real life. The end we know definitely didn't happen. Yeah, um, I think just from a filmmaking standpoint to talk about what you mentioned there with the flamethrower and all that, I love the little details that he scatters throughout the movie uh, that end up playing a role in this final scene, right? Whether it's the flamethrower, whether it's 
Brad Pitt murdering his wife, which kind of explains sort of the violent aggression that we see from him in this scene. Whether and the fact that he was on an acid trip, not yeah. unlike the, I mean, this is something that we could, I maybe should mention, but I think that the Cliff's portrayal in this final scene, I think is meant to mirror the Mansons themselves yeah. being high, being, you know, hyper, hyper brutally violent. Uh, it, it is an interesting, uh, there's some interesting symmetry involved there, which I think, which I think is good filmmaking probably. But yeah, the acid cigarette, the, you know, dog food, the uh, Rick just sitting on his pool, you know, with his headphones on listening to music. All of these things seem sort of mundane when you see them the first time around. But then the way that they all come together, the way they're all synthesized together in this final scene uh, makes it all the more satisfying. And yeah, I think from a thematic point, it helps me to think about contextualize it with a couple of interviews that I've listened to from Tarantino and you know, one in particular, I think when he was, when Inglorious Bastards was released, he, that, and he was asked about, you know, the fact that he killed Hitler, right? He's rewriting history. And he said, you know, that I don't really see it as rewriting history. I see it as this is what would happen. This is what would have happened if these characters were alive. And I think that's an interesting sentiment. And I think it's more interesting when it's paired with something else that he said in another interview. I, I it was on one of the late shows a few years back where he, he kind of, um, poo pooed the whole concept of like having a movie that mirrors real life saying, uh, and he said something like, you know, I, I've never watched a movie before where I didn't know I was watching a movie. So he's, he's, you know, in other words, he's always aware that something is being constructed, that there's this artifice in front of him when he's watching a movie. And I think he, he expects his viewers sort of to, to see the same thing. And, and that's why, you know, his movies can be cartoonish and they, they do stuff like killing Hitler um, in the movie theater and Inglorious Bastards. But um, I think when you pair those two sentiments together, what you get kind of explains maybe where he's coming from with this ending, with keeping sharing Tate alive. I think, you know, he's kind of saying that um, a movie is just a movie, right? We can't change history. Everyone knows the real history. When you walk out of the theater, you know, even though you've just seen the film, you're you're still gonna know that Sharon Tate was killed by the Manson family. It's not changing anyone's opinion on that. But I think that uh, you know, for a few minutes, uh, for for 160 minutes, we can imagine what it was like, what it would be like if these characters were alive, right? Like the the thing that Tarantino posits of this is what would have happened if these characters were real people, if Rick Dalton and Cliff were real people, and we get to imagine that for 160 minutes. And I think. That approach really works in this movie, again, because of that theme of the power of cinema that I think he weaves throughout, you know, not just that Margot Robbie scene in the theater, but, you know, Rick Dalton in the way that when he finally, you know, is able to give a satisfying performance, you know, it's something that's really fulfilling to him and really satisfying um, to us as the, the audience and really the just the friendship between these two guys, which I think is also central to um, the movie and maybe not something we've talked too much about, but I think um, their friendship is a key element of the movie. And that's something that was a product of their relationship together in the movies. And I think there are just a lot of other little details where he's, uh, and you know, even, even the fact that he made this movie in the first place that he wants, that he has nostalgia for this period, I think uh, evokes a certain belief about um, the power that movies can have. And so I think that's why the ending works for me. Um, in addition to, you know, all of those, all of that context that I, I talked about there because he's, he's di diving into the, the fairy tale realm and saying, 
you know, look, at, alluding to what I said earlier, look at what I can do with the movies. I've showed you what uh, movies can do for our characters in this movie. Now look at what this movie can do. We can bring Sharon Tate back to life, not for real, but uh, we can in the minds of the viewers for, you know, 160 minutes. And I think, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief. Obviously you have to uh, be willing to go out on a limb a little bit, but I think it's, I appreciate that you, you know, you said it's Tarantino, right? I think that is part of it. Like as much as we shouldn't hold, you know, everyone to, to different standards. I think that Tarantino at this point has established himself as a brilliant director and also as someone who breaks the rules. Right. And so I think whether it's, you know, sets a precedent or not, uh, he gets a little bit of leeway, I think for, for breaking the rules a little bit with, um, you know, what you would expect from a traditional movie, because, uh, he's shown, he, again, he has such a great track record with doing that. And so I think you can't discount the role that, Tarantino as Tarantino plays uh, in how you evaluate this movie. Um, and yeah, I, I was, again, th these are all things that I've, I've sort of like you racked my brain about in the last couple of days and, and mainly because of some of the stuff I've been reading on the internet, but I think, you know, have, have only amplified my appreciation or <laughs> maybe, maybe it's kind of an echo chamber, right? Maybe they're just echoing back what I, uh, confirming what I believe to, to be true about the movie. Um, but you know, I, 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 it, it really worked for me and not just as a moment of sort of Tarantino indulging, um, himself and, and on, you know, on that note, I think there's a, I saw a good tweet today that someone put, um, you know, maybe he is indulging himself, but I, isn't it great that we have a, a movie with a self to indulge? Um, and I think that that's, that's a valid point, but not just as Tarantino self-indulgement, but um, as, you know, a really satisfying follow through on the themes that he sets up in this movie. So it really worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would respond to say to you talking about it, you know, being Tarantino and that he's done other things and, you know, he's never watched a movie where he didn't remember he was watching a movie. You know, I think that that's fair. And I think that, I also have never forgotten that I'm watching a movie when I've watched a film. But with something like Inglorious Bastards, my personal experience of watching that movie, and you know, maybe people disagree with me, but there was never a moment in that movie where I thought, oh, well, this could have happened. Like, no part of that movie uh, in terms of like the characters. Like, I, didn't, I never thought that, okay, well, okay, okay, that, that's, too, that's too far. That's too far. The opening scene definitely could have happened. Um, but like, the characters never quite feel real. With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think that he really goes on a deep fake on this one because I think it's really easy to believe that everything you're watching on screen could have could have could have happened very realistically. Now maybe that's my own bias. Maybe Inglorious Bastards is is more realistic than I give it credit for because I just don't truly comprehend how how things were and, and what things might have been happening. Uh, I think that the the thing that I come back to, and I'm, I'm thinking less about the actual, you know, of course, the opening scene, killing the the, the Jewish family. That's that's not really what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking more of a, a character, a character like Shoshana. Like that doesn't seem like a real person, and plotting the that that particular act in in that particular way, and and that happening never really felt like it could have happened to me. With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, everything that happened in that movie for the first two hours and ten minutes felt like it very well could have happened. It, it, you know. Whether, what, did I always remember that I was watching a movie? Absolutely, yes. But then you have the last half in it, half half hour, 20 minutes, and it's jarring because you know when you're watching it acutely that what you're watching now absolutely did not happen. 
in real life. And so I think Tarantino's point is totally fine that like, well, you know, you know that what you're watching is fiction because you're watching a movie. You know, it's not a documentary. It's not anything like that. You're not watching real life. It's a movie. But I think that as much as he closes the loop on all of his on all of his narrative themes, I think that there's this meta theme about what is real and what is not real that he uses to great effect in some in some ways, but create but ends up crafting these two parts, which I found extremely entertaining and ultimately am you know ninety to ninety five percent positive on that I think it it creates a very jarring disconnect, I think, when you think when you zoom out and think of it as all right, this is an homage to 1969 LA and everything else before this point very much felt like it could have been 1969 LA. But there's this weird juxtaposition of something that definitely did not happen in 1969 LA. And again, I want to say that I'm still, I still am net positive after really wrestling with it, uh, quite net positive even on this, because I think it does wrap up so many of the themes really well. But I do, I don't know if just because Tarantino says, oh, you're watching a movie, so it's fine. Is a is is quite the explanation I'm looking for, maybe. Yeah, no, and I'll just say as a final point, I don't want to relitigate Inglorious Bastards, obviously, but I would push back a little bit in saying I think that there is a degree of realism to that movie, or it, a degree of realism that is not too far removed from the degree of realism in this movie. And I do think that that Hans Landa character, you know, maybe there wasn't a single person who was the exact you know substitute yeah, for the Jew, that, that's totally Jew fair. hunter, but I think that the sort of business-like efficiency, right? Like the, yeah. the thing about that Hans yeah. Landa character, right, is that he's not really interested in the mm-hmm. morality of of killing Jews. It's he's looking at it as a business opportunity, right? And at the yeah, end of yeah. the at the end of the movie, when he gets the opportunity, when yep. he sees that he is best suited elsewhere and and cutting bait and running right and making a deal with the bastards he takes that opportunity because he's not really committed to this pursuit of of hunting jews he's only committed to it because it's sort of a business business because he's good at it right yeah and i think that's that is really pretty similar to how the nazis ran the whole operation um yeah i think that's a good point i think that i i'm definitely I said that, and um, I think it was probably clear that I immediately felt like I probably should backtrack that a little bit because uh, I was mainly thinking of Shoshana and the and the events that happened there. I think that's a fair point. This is not a review of Inglorious Bastards, thankfully enough, but I still think that my overall feeling about this, and and again, this is just my personal experience watching these two different movies, that I like it felt more realistic watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood than it did watching that, and that and maybe that's because they're different periods, different times, exploring different subjects. And it's not very nice to think that something like Inglorious Bastards could have been very realistic. Um, yeah, and it's quite nice to think that Once Upon a Time, the first two hours of Once Upon a, Holly, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, could have been very realistic. And so maybe there's some there's some dynamic there. But I, I think I do stand by the point that it is it's asynchronous and that it is jarring to think about from a meta narrative perspective about what is real and what's not real. But everything else, I think, ties together really well with the fun with the finale of this movie. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, I think we could go for another 40 minutes probably, but um, let's let's not. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> let's move into the wrap up and sort of as the first question uh, for the wrap up, I want to ask you because, you know, everyone's doing their Tarantino rankings. They're all over social media and I don't necessarily uh, I'm not necessarily asking you to do your full ranking or anything, but good thing because I haven't seen as many <laughs> as I would like to admit that I have. Yeah. But uh, where would you place this uh, movie, uh, at least among the ones that you've seen in, in Tarantino's uh, lexicon? Yeah, for sure. I, I think this is top tier for me. Um, you know, I don't have the I haven't seen all of it. So I like, and for example, I think one of the standouts that I haven't seen that uh, I'm hoping to amend before we do our best of the decade episode is Django Unchained. So I have not seen Django Unchained, but 
what I consider kind of the other big Tarantino movies I, I have seen. So I've seen Pulp Fiction. I've seen Inglorious Bastards. I've seen Kill Bill. And I've seen Reservoir Dogs. Um, and so I, in that category, I think that I put it somewhere in that upper echelon top three of Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards. And uh, and then this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that I put it above Reservoir Dogs. I put it, above, I put it, I think, slightly above Kill Bill. I think right now we'll see how it ages over time. And I'm more curious when I do see Django Unchained how, how I'll feel about relative to that because, of course, that also has Leonardo DiCaprio, my favorite actor. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, it's definitely in the upper tier for me. And and this feels like a movie maybe even more so than some other Tarantino movies that I think I might even fall more in love with on rewatches. Yeah, I think you're really going to enjoy Django Unchained when you watch it. But, yeah, for me, I yep. think that coming out of the movie, you know, I, I, I immediately thought – that's number three. That is his best movie mm-hmm. since Inglorious Bastards. That's the best that he's done other than Inglorious Bastards and Pulp Fiction, which are my one, two. Um, and I think I stand by that again. I want to rewatch the movie, but honestly, I can't see it going down in my in my estimation. But I also can't really see it going up. Like, I, I think it, w- it would have to do a lot on that rewatch to, to reach the, the precedent set by Pulp Fiction. And it, it, it will never get to where Inglorious Bastards is in my mind, but... Huh. Yeah, because there are slight negatives to this movie yeah. that we just didn't talk about because it's not in our the editing is rundown good, of how yeah. we Yeah, that like the editing and some of the some of the cuts are interestingly woven together. And I think I imagine Tarantino himself will probably want that to be a little bit cleaner in his next film. Yeah, but I so I stand by that. It's my number three. I have seen all the movies as well, so I have a complete list. Um and it's it's my number three in there ahead of Django at, at number four. So all right, Scott. Big nerd over here. Big film nerd. <laughs> Big Tarantino nerd, at least. All right, Scott. Uh, favorite scene or moment? It's so hard to pick. I mean, we talk. Of, I talk about this with with certain directors all the time, and especially with movies like this, like a Richard Linklater movie, that stream of consciousness that it feels like you're getting perfectly woven together moments um, rather than you know discrete scenes a lot of times, and so it's it's tough to pick a moment. But for me. One scene that I talked about how I really enjoyed watching it in the trailer and then really, really enjoyed watching it in the film. And so I might go, it was so hard to choose, but I think I might go with Mike Moe versus <laughs> uh, Brad Pitt, you know, Bruce Lee versus the stuntman, Cliff, uh, Cliff Booth. And it's, I mean, that's a spectacular scene. And then I think the the lead into that, which you, of course, you don't get in the trailer and then kind of the the finale of that, which is this whole memory sequence that Brad Pitt's thinking about why he can't get a stunt job anymore uh, in Hollywood with this particular director that Leo DiCaprio, Rick Dalton is working with. And it's because one, that his wife or the director's wife thinks that Brad Pitt killed his wife. And two, because he's just kind of a dick. He's a kind of an asshole. Um, just picking fights with people just, just because essentially for no, for no reason other than the fact that he can. And then it's pretty satisfying to see, to think about the fact that this stunt man can throw Bruce Lee into a car and, and beat it. And essentially, you know, give, give him a little bit of a beating. Yeah. I, a fun piece of trivia about that scene as well is that the director's wife is played by Zoe Bell, who is a real life stunt woman and played, uh, you know, was one of the leads in Quentin Tarantino's death proof. So kind of just kind of a funny uh, juxtaposition having her in that scene with, of course, Brad Pitt playing the stuntman. I would like you to see my comment from several minutes ago titled 
nerd. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and just to throw one more nerd moment in there, since I did talk about how much I loved Inglorious Bastards, I do love the the really subtle reference in this movie to one of the spaghetti westerns that Rick Dalton eventually um, stars in is directed by Antonio Margaretti, who, of course, is one of the aliases used by uh, one of the bastards at the movie premiere. Um, in that that memorable scene from Inglorious Bastards, but um, as far as favorite scene, I don't know. I think maybe, obviously, the ending is great, but I, I might go with the scene at the Spawn family ranch just because I think that's classic Tarantino, yeah. right? This long, uh, protracted scene that is, you know, heavily built on dialogue, and the dialogue is is constantly building the tension. Um, I don't think it reaches the heights of of some of the great dialogue set pieces. Uh, in some of his other movies, but in a movie where, it, you know, we're largely removed from the usual Tarantino tropes, it is great to see uh, this kind of a set piece that still fits really well with what he's trying to do with the movie. So I'm going to go with that one. Fair enough. All right. Put a score on it, Scott. Mm, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been going back and forth the entire review on just, just a decimal point. So it's not even like I'm yeah. having these huge swings, but I think, I think I have settled on an 8.9. 9.5 for me, Scott, definitely one of my faves of the year. Um, it's not, it's about three or four on my list right now, but I could definitely see it going up yeah. um, again on rewatch and everything. Yeah. But, it's uh, number six yeah, on it, my list right now. And I can, I'm already, I mean, I'm staring at my list literally right now as we've talked on this episode, thinking about it and like, you know, there's a very even number of movies between three and seven on my list currently. And any of them could end up anywhere by the end of the year. So this could be as high as three. By the yeah, it's a wonderful film, and I think if you're not a Tarantino fan, usually give it a chance because I think of his films, this may be the one that you're most likely to enjoy. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment, especially if you leave 20 minutes with 20 minutes left in the movie and you don't even see any of the Tarantino flair. <laughs> don't yeah, do that though. It'd be a very different movie. Yeah. Um, okay, Scott. Well, that was a, a very thorough but uh, but very worthy dive, I think, into. Uh, a movie with a lot of talking points once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, luckily for us, it's a pretty light week on news and trailers. Uh, and w- we'll get to those when we get back. Uh, but we do have some good trailers to discuss, uh, including a uh, new trailer for Jojo Rabbit. So we'll get to those after the break. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, as I mentioned, a little bit of a lighter week on news and trailers, but still a few things to get to. Starting with the news, uh, we learned more about the release of the upcoming Joker film directed by Todd Phillips. Um, Of course, that is generating a lot of buzz. uh, And we learned that it is going to be playing at a couple of festivals prior to its worldwide release. The Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF, which seems like it's getting every big premiere this year. Um, And it's also going to be in competition at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, Any thoughts on this, Scott? Yeah, awesome that TIFF is getting the the worldwide premiere of this film. And then interesting that it's in competition at Venice rather than TIFF. I wonder what the intention is there or if it was just trying to, you know, be at as many festivals as possible there. But, you know, awesome. I think it's confirmation that, you know, Warner Brothers, DC, the producers on this movie, Todd Phillips, are all very serious about making this an awards contender of the ilk of something like Black Panther or Logan. And I think that's awesome because that means the movie 
isn't trying to take shortcuts with dealing with hard themes and giving a really great, and then of course, Joaquin Phoenix is real. What I imagine will ultimately be a really gritty performance. I mean, we've seen iconic performances in the Joker of the Joker in the past, most notably for me, Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker, which of course won him a uh, Academy award. (laughs) Most notably for everyone. I think, (laughs) I mean, I, you say that, but I think that maybe some people still think that Jack, I've heard people's takes that Jack Nicholson is still the Joker. Probably. In their minds. Yeah, that's probably. But that, that's not true for me. And I think that that validation is just reassuring that this movie isn't going to be like some of the darker DC movies that we've experienced in the past uh, that have fallen short of the bar by almost any by almost any metric. And I think that it's just all aboard the hype train for this movie, Scott. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm definitely... Uh on board for a take on this movie uh, or take on this character that we haven't really seen before. And, you know, with a great actor like Joaquin Phoenix uh, in charge, uh, I, I have some confidence, even if the Todd Phillips name is a little concerning to me uh, as director, but I think maybe, so, you know, so sorry, what, so I'm curious about that. Cause we actually haven't talked about the fact that you're concerned by Todd Phillips directing it. What's 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 that? well, he's mainly known for his broad comedies, right? The hangover movies. Uh, he, this is really one of his first forays into drama and i mean it's serious drama it's this is going to be a very dark movie from what we can tell from the trailer so uh you know i guess just the lack of experience there is you know yeah what gives me a little bit of pause yeah i guess i'm that's fair i think that's fair i think i'm less concerned about that though because oftentimes comedians are you know just the best at dramatic at you know crafting dramatic narratives yeah. and, and stories and you know maybe more notably acting i just think of robin williams giving his best performances sure. Um, in dramatic roles, as, but obviously better known for being a comedian. So I'm hopeful, but maybe I'm unfairly optimistic. I don't know. Scott, looking elsewhere to some casting news, uh, Jennifer Lawrence has been cast in a new movie from Oscar winner Paolo Sorrentino called Mob Girl. Any uh, thoughts on this project? We don't know too much yet, but I imagine Jennifer Lawrence will be playing the Mob Girl. <laughs> you know, I think it's probably a safe bet. Otherwise, why announce that she's in the movie? And I think this is awesome. I and mean, we've been talking a little bit more about what, you know, what Jennifer Lawrence's next roles are going to be. I mean, we know about the film with A24 that uh, is, I think it doesn't have a title yet, but it's um, it's being directed by uh, Lila Nugabauer or something like that. So going back to her indie roots with something like Winter's Bone and this movie, although not, uh, you know, of course, alluding back to a time where she did American Hustle during that during that period of her acting career, which was definitely at the, one of the high points of her career thus far. And I think that although American Hustle wasn't necessarily my favorite movie that she's done or even in maybe the top tier of movies that she's done, in my opinion, I think that it's really awesome to see her going back to these kind of roles as great as it was to have her as Mystique in the X-Men franchise. It was it was time for her to also be doing other movies, Uh, but I'm excited for this. I hope that I like it more than I liked American Hustle and I have nothing but but optimism and promise. I'm just in a great mood today, Scott. (laughs) That's great to hear. Um, uh, Yeah, I definitely like uh seeing her get back to her roots because i think she she can be one of our best actresses uh when she's in the right project so this uh this is encouraging obviously coming from a name like paolo sorrentino as well uh gives me some faith although i haven't caught either the great beauty or youth before uh but he is an oscar winner so uh you haven't caught youth that's a shame (laughs) hard to discount that yeah i haven't hit puberty yet unfortunately um Okay, Scott, another uh, movie announcement we got this week was for this movie, The Last Duel. I, I think this was at Netflix. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, 
but no i i got caught before i got to who was distributing it (laughs) yeah and that's understandable the movie is directed by ridley scott is going to be directed by ridley scott starring ben affleck and matt damon and the controversy that this is provoking is surrounding mainly the use of rape as a plot device in this movie and the fact that um the movie seems to be largely about one one of their characters is being accused of raping the other one's wife i think while they're one's away at war or something i think it's Mm -hmm. like uh set in sort of medieval or times, something like that. Another detail, which I think sort of frames the the movie a little bit differently and the controversy a little bit differently is that this is going to be written by Nicole Holofcener, who, of course, has a great track record, wrote Can You Ever Forgive Me last year, was Oscar nominated and uh, is known for her really literate indie scripts. Uh, Scott, what are your thoughts on the sort of mess that this movie has already provoked? Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking here at the at the plot description that Deadline reported when they originally broke the news. And so yeah, Damon and Affleck, they're they are playing. It looks like it's going to be set in the third. I feel so strongly that this movie does not need to be made. I. It also doesn't help that I don't. My maybe my hottest movie take is that I don't think Matt Damon is that good of an actor. And so I, pretty much nothing about this movie is getting me excited. I cannot believe that in the year 2019 we are in pre-production or production of a movie that is about someone's like someone raping someone else's wife. And that's someone else then coming and and trying to like be a hero. I mean, we talked about fridging with last year with particularly with Deadpool two. And this is like fridging on steroids. It's like so, so bad. It really frustrated me to see someone like Ridley Scott with a talent and the flair that he has. I mean, God, I mean, goodness sake, like go do Sherlock three. Don't do this movie. I think I, I think I mostly come down in the same camp as you. I think the Nicole Holof Center thing does give me pause. I don't think it's impossible to write a powerful story about rape still, but I just don't know if the way that this movie is set up, if if this is going to be the story. So I think I'll probably lean more towards you of uh, being very highly questioning of this. But at the same time, I, I do find it hard, e- even knowing what we know, I, I do find it hard to pass judgment on something, at least until I see a trailer, maybe. Yeah, and that's fair. Like, and look, I'm, I like all of my bluster. I'm probably still going to see this movie when it comes out and have a informed opinion on it. And I hope that Nicole Holof Center's contributions to this story, she's co-writing it with Damon and Affleck. And I just, I just can't help but think that you know, after something like "Can You Ever Forgive Me" last year, why do we need Ridley Scott to direct this movie? Why can't Nicole Holof Center direct this movie? That I feel a little bit better about. Um, yeah, no, but, that, that's I mean, probably an interesting, more interesting question, just because all of Center has directed, right? It's not it's not like you're you're deferring to yeah. someone who, uh, you know, has the directorial experience because Nicole Hall of Center does have directorial experience as well. No, it's because Ridley Scott made that King Arthur movie. So he's got that big feel. Yeah, and that in was the such a huge Ages hit. Um, oh, yeah. Best movie of the decade. I got just a quick tease for our podcast coming up. <laughs> OK, Scott. Um Moving on to more bad news, but bad news for Chadwick <laughs> Boseman fans. Um, 21 Bridges has once again been pushed back. This is the uh, Russo Brothers produced crime drama that was originally supposed to come out in the summer, and then it was slated yeah. for a September release, and, and then it got pushed back to November. It's been pushed back to November now. Uh, Scott, I don't know. The trailers look pretty decent for this movie, but this yeah. can't be a good sign that the constant uh, release date getting pushed back, I would think. Yeah, I've done my due diligence on this, and the conclusions that I have come to is that it seemed there there could be multiple problems here. It could be that the movie is not very good, which is bad. <laughs> That's bad news. I have actually quite liked the trailers. To your point, I really think that Chadwick Boseman, Stephen James, I think the whole concept of this movie looks really interesting. Maybe it executes incredibly poorly. I don't know, uh, but 
it getting pushed back once was a bad sign. Getting pushed back a second time is a really bad sign. The report out of Deadline and the spin that Deadline put on it was more of it's a less competitive release um, timeline, which may or may not be true. The problem is I think that September and October and November are all incredibly difficult release times because there is some amazing, there's an amazing crop of movies coming out in particularly in September, October and November this year, less so December, but there are still a few bangers out in December, of course, that we've mentioned on the podcast before. But I think that for, for me, when going and looking at some other takes on this is that STX is the distributor on this, Scott. And if you're having a hard time remembering the last time the STX put out a successful movie, that's because they haven't put out a successful movie in a while. And it seems like the their financial troubles may actually be playing a significant role in this mm. and that they are having a difficult time conjuring up the funds to actually give this movie the wide release that they want. And that may be a contributing factor to why the movie keeps getting pushed back. What that means, I'm not sure. And it probably is a better sign for the quality of the movie itself. But it's not boding well for the actual distribution of this film. I, you know, I don't know how many more times it can get pushed back before we should just expect it to go direct to DVD. But I hope this movie gets a wide enough release in theaters for me to be able to catch it. Because I, I do think that it has promise. Yeah, I think, you know, regardless of, of this news, I am going to be interested to catch the movie whenever it does drop. I don't think, you know, this is necessarily a sign of, of bad quality. As, as you've, uh, you know, you've mentioned, there are possible other reasons for why uh, this delay is happening. You know, heck, one of my favorite movies of this year was Under the Silver Lake, which uh, got pushed back into oblivion. So uh, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I guess I'm a little more uh, forgiving of movies that they go through these troubles, but uh, definitely treading a little more carefully, I guess, with this movie now than I was when I originally saw the first trailer. Yeah, I mean, some movies that just in the past couple of years that S- STX has distributed, uh, they had The Upside, which is their big positive um, kind of landmark <laughs> oh, movie great. that they've had. Well, I mean, that it, movie in terms of making yeah, money. And it was decently well received. So, yeah. Yeah. But then you have Ugly Dolls, which didn't even <laughs> make half its production budget. Uh, the Best of Enemies, which I've heard reasonably good things about. Of course, it has Sam Rockwell. Yeah. And is it T- Tiffany Haddish or Pro- Traji P. Henson? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Traji P. Henson. That movie just made its, its production budget back, which means that it lost money. And, it's, and it lost money ultimately because of its marketing budget, I'm sure. You have Palms. Which I mean, I, I guess it maybe made its money back, but still. Then last year they had Peppermint, Ugh. The Happy Time Murders, Whoa. Mile Twenty Two, Adrift. Oh my gosh, these were some of the Gringo. worst movies of last year. Yeah, they've had a bad run the last couple of years, and not all of them. They haven't lost money on all of them, but the problem is, besides a movie like The Upside, they haven't really had one that's crushed. They even had I Feel Pretty too, uh, which which definitely made its money back, but still like. I don't know, man. Like that's that's the situation that STX is in. Okay, Scott. Last bit of news before we get to some trailers. Uh, Regal Cinemas has at long last announced uh, their subscription plan to to complement other mm. services like uh, Movie Pass or AMC Stubs, of course, which we are both members of. The, the, an interesting thing about this plan is that uh, there are different tiers uh, where you you know obviously the price gets more expensive as you go up. But the lower tier is not going to give you access to all Regal cinemas, uh, whereas like uh, AMC Stubbs, for example, you know, you get the A-list 20 bucks a month and you get access to all AMC theaters, I think, for the most part. Um, Mm -hmm. And 100 percent. You get you get access to all the theaters. And but Regal is not taking that approach. They're having like the uh, 
$20 plan, which is going to get you like 200 theaters, I think. And then $24, which gets you about 400 and then like $28, which uh, gets you, I think all of them, Scott, you know, obviously this, they want to be a competitor with AMC. You're definitely more tapped into the business side. Do you think that people are going to be more willing to pay this higher price point? Uh, or do you think people will just stick with AMC, uh, given the, uh, perpetuance of both uh, chains of theaters. Yeah, I mean, AMC has a larger share, uh, just to go on the business side to put my business hat on here, AMC has a larger, has more theaters and a larger share of ticket sales in the space because of their larger share of the number of theaters uh, in the US. And so that being said, I think that there are instances where you may not have an AMC near you. Like I know in what, like if I was still living in Williamstown, I would have an indie theater my indie, uh, my indie single screen movie theater in Williamstown. And then I'd have a Regal 25 to 30 minutes away. And so that's a scenario which if I were still living in Williamstown, I would subscribe to Regal because I think that I would be able to make to make the money back on that. That being said, they, what this what this offering is, is just something that is fairly or even you could even argue fundamentally different than what A-List is offering. And that's and I think and I ultimately think it probably is a smart business move is that what they've done is that they have made the you know the, this regal membership something that is probably more financially sustainable for someone who ultimately should suspect a lower subscribership because it's not like these stub like stubs a list regal um what is this called again regal unlimited yeah and movie pass like these things generally speaking are not additive services like there's no situation in which you're going to subscribe i i mean maybe i'm wrong here but i don't think that there's a situation in which you're going to subscribe to a list and regal unlimited but there is a situation in which there are quite a few people that do this that subscribe to example like Netflix and HBO, right? Like these services aren't additive here. And so what Regal is trying to do is they're not trying to compete one to like one for one to one with what AMC is doing in that. And they would lose in that category, I think, because they don't have the theater share in, in the market. Like they would only essentially in my, from my perspective, probably be successful in markets in which they don't have AMC, like a major AMC theater competing with them. So what they've done here is they've made it sustainable such that like AMC is able to be successful because they are operating at such scale where, you know, even though some people maybe like you and me uh, more than make our money back every month on the number of movies we see at A-list with A-list, there are people out there who, you know, otherwise wouldn't be going to AMC. And the fact that they've purchased something is, is generating more revenue for AMC, even though maybe they are um, making it a financially sustainable for themselves or at least making their money back right if that makes sense so like people who just wouldn't have gone to the movies or maybe would have gone to a different theater are now going to amc more and through because they have a list because uh of that and so amc is getting more money even though the person is still making their money back in the theater share with regal i think that their game plan here is to create something that's a little bit more financially sustainable at a lower scale and what they've been able to do is essentially do some price some price differentiation so sometimes in in more uh critical areas this is called price gouging that you're costing or targeting certain audiences in larger and more lucrative markets more money because the theatrical experience is higher demand um and you're begin you're be, you're essentially being provided a service that is greater than other markets and that is essentially you if you want to see a movie here in boston i'd imagine i really doubt that the regal cineplex over in back bay next to fenway is going to be on anything except the highest tier uh, of that service offering. And that's not surprising to me. And so ultimately what you also get in something that you were alluding to, but just to flush it out more is that not only are you only getting access to certain theaters at certain tiers, 
you're not getting access to all types of movies shown at that theater. You still have to pay an upcharge for every movie you see in IMAX, for example. There's an upcharge on that. And that's, again, just to make that more sustainable for Regal. So the people who are going to subscribe to that service are going to be in markets where there probably is less competition for AMC. And so these additional allows Regal to get more uh, value per person, even if the person is still able to make their money back. Right. So it's still a good deal for the consumer. But Regal is able to supplement the fact that they're not going to be able to operate at a larger scale. And so that that's my take on it. It's not going to be as successful, but Regal knows that. And that's why they're choosing this model. Uh, I think that to a consumer who has the ability to subscribe to A-List versus subscribes to Regal, I don't think they're ever going to win share in that department because A-List is a better is a better deal. That is just plain and simple. It's a better deal. Uh, but they're trying to create an offering for their for a market where there isn't an AMC uh, that is still attractive and people can still make their money back uh, subscribing to the membership and taking advantage of what Regal has to offer. And we'll see if it's ultimately a sustainable model. Yeah, fortunately, I haven't lived anywhere where I don't have, uh, c- you know, comfortable access to an AMC. So uh, this particular, of course, I d- I'm, I'm not as well versed in the business side. So all I can say about all I can, you know, say is whether I will sign up for it or not. And the answer is no, because uh, the AMC stubs plan is such an amazing deal. And uh, you know, really, the this podcast would not exist, really, or at least would not e- exist uh, at at the at quality the that it is. Yeah, yeah, without AMC stubs, and so I have no qualms, and I wouldn't for a split second think about uh, dropping them. Um, okay, Scott, let's get to some trailers now uh, before we finish off the show. Uh, a few interesting ones to talk about. First of all, first trailer we got for Zombieland Double Tap. Uh, this is, of course, the sequel. Ruben Fleischer is returning to direct, uh, just as he directed the first one. Scott, the first one, it's been 10 years since that movie came out. I'm a huge fan of the original Zombieland. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, and this trailer got me absolutely amped. Uh, yep. It looks really funny. Uh, the cast looks like they're going to be in great form. And uh, we, we've we added a couple people to the cast. Uh, I remember Zoe Deutsch is, was in there. And um, mm-hmm. there was someone else, too, that um, is escaping. Thomas Middleditch. Thomas Middleditch, yes, uh, and Rosario Dawson. That's who I was trying to think of. Uh, Rosario Dawson also in there, along with, of course, the core quartet of Jesse Eisenberg, Emma Stone, Abigail Breslin, Woody Harrelson. Scott, are you excited for this film? Yeah, I'm very excited. I have not seen the original. I probably will be uh, putting on a viewing for myself before October 18th when this movie releases. And one thing I will say when I was just doing some background research this, the number of movies that Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg have co-starred in is surprisingly high. <laughs> they are frequent collaborators. They did not oh, see right. me. Yeah, now you yeah. see me two together. So they have clearly have something something going on here between between the two of them. And this trailer showed me that what they have going on between these two and then you know of course the other core members of the cast here is something I definitely want to be seeing. And I'm really excited about this movie. I texted you, although maybe this comment hasn't aged well now, that Emma Stone firing a grenade launcher is the sexiest thing that I've seen in 2019 <laughs> in movies. But then, of course, I saw once upon a time. I was about to say that Marco Ravi that comment didn't it didn't last very long. But still, Emma Stone is absolutely uh, looking looking great with a grenade launcher. So uh, I just really I really can't wait for this movie. This movie looks like it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited um, as I already was. But yeah, this trailer got me more on board. Okay, Scott. Speaking of being on board, we got a second trailer for Gemini Man, the Ang Lee actioner, which we're getting in just a couple of months now, starring Will Smith. Um, mm-hmm. Another movie I'm really excited for. I think you probably feel the same. Did this new trailer shed any new light for you, Scott? 
I'm not sure that it did. Uh, it's a great, it's a good trailer. I liked it a lot. I don't think I learned anything more about this movie. I already kind of thought the first trailer showed too much of the movie for my tense. And I think that this trailer continues to hint at, um, I like what a, a couple of plot twists even. I don't know. Uh, I hope that I'm just overreading it and that's not actually the direction it's going and that this trailer didn't show too much, but that's my only fear. I'm still really excited about this movie. I'm excited to see what Ang Lee uh, is able to conjure with this. Will Smith really looks like, you know, I talked about Brad Pitt kind of recapturing some magic that he had maybe eight, nine years ago that he hasn't had in a while. And, you know, maybe Will Smith has been a little bit more uh, in tune and put some better performances in than Brad Pitt has in the last eight years. But this looks like something that could really be, uh, really be something special for him. One thing that I learned recently is that I assumed that this movie, they would be de-aging Will Smith for the, for the younger version of him, Mm -hmm. but they're actually not de-aging him. It's, it's really interesting they, they essentially created this algorithm or, or some sort of compilation of his face and facial uh, facial features, facial expressions from all the other movies that he started when he was that age. And they are, they are essentially CG animating the face using that as a reference point. So they're not using de-aging technology. They're doing something different, which I think in the point that, that uh, I think I can't actually remember the person who was making this point on movie talk last week is that it actually ends up looking and feeling more realistic than something de-aged where, you know, something like Samuel L. Jackson and Captain Marvel, who looks like uh, who looks like a young person in an old person's body. Uh, I think something it's something it's, it's looking for something different here. Uh, and, yeah. and we're going to get something different out of it, which I think is cool. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I had not heard that. But I, you know, I have heard there's a few people who have seen footage from this movie already. And uh, they've talked about how visually uh, incredible it is and that it's really uh, pretty revolutionary from a visual visual standpoint. And the trailers look like that there's a there could be a thought provoking story as well. So I'm I'm really on board for this and uh, I'm just ready to see the movie now after this trailer. You and me both. Uh, another movie I'm ready to see, Scott, is The Goldfinch, John Crowley's adaptation of uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Donna Tartt. Uh, and we got the second trailer for that movie starring Ansel Elgort and Nicole Kidman, among others. Uh, Scott, are you uh, as excited as I am? Of course, you haven't read the book like I have, I know. Uh, but I think you were a fan of this trailer as well, if I'm not mistaken. I was a fan of it. Another atmospheric tone setter of a trailer for this uh, for this movie. Confirming again what we already knew. Not sure we learned anything new from this trailer, but that's totally okay because it's just reaffirming that, that, that that's what this is what the tone is going to be for this movie. This is if this is if you like this trailer, then you're going to like hopefully what you get out of the movie because this is what it's going to be. This is what's going to be like. I'm here for it. I'm ready for it. Uh, copy and paste from the last uh, trailer we just talked about about me being excited. Yeah, I really like. I think you really got a, a more of a sense of the epic sweep of the story in this trailer, which is something that I, I'm, you know, I still am concerned a little bit about because it is such a long and rich and dense novel. I'm How sure it's th- going to be like 300 minutes, so don't worry about it. We have a trend of long <laughs> movies this year. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be that long. Uh, I'm not sure if they've set a running time for this movie yet, but uh, I, I do think that the movie did give me a really epic feel to it with the music and everything. Uh, I think really. Uh, Gave me a fuller picture than what we got with the first trailer. Um, So, yeah, this was in my top five most anticipated of the year, and I stand by that. Final trailer, Scott, before we close the show. A movie that was not in our one of our top, our anticipated list, but is slowly creeping up uh, there for me after after this trailer. To be honest with you, is the latest from Taika Waititi, of course, the uh, director of Thor Ragnarok and the upcoming Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, this is a movie called Jojo Rabbit, and Scott, you know the the trailer perhaps didn't give 
a ton away about the plot. It's it was a pretty short trailer, but I I uh, after watching this trailer, I dubbed it uh, Moonrise Kingdom versus Inglorious Bastards. Uh, we have like a hmm. sort of kids at camp vibe, but also Hitler is involved. But it um it looks like it's going to be very satirical and the sort of wacky uh, comedy that Watiti is known for making. Are you excited for this film? Yeah, I mean, you say Hitler's involved, but Hitler as an imaginary friend. Right, yeah. So uh, helping out little Jojo, Jojo Rabbit, yes. the character. Uh, yeah, I mean, this cast is crazy. Like, you didn't even, I don't know if we, or it's worth Scarlett time, Johansson. But, yeah, Scarlett Johansson, Thomasine McKenzie, Taika Waititi playing, playing Hitler, uh, Sam Rockwell, Rebel Wilson, Stephen Merchant, Alfie Allen. Yeah, that's a good cast. This is going to be uh, really interesting, potentially, uh, you know, a, a surprise hit for for both of us. Although I guess it wouldn't be that big of a surprise coming from a TD. But uh, yeah, I think this yeah. is another one that's premiering at uh, TIFF, if I'm not mistaken. It is. And you know what, Scott? You're talking all the time about wanting Walt Disney Studios motion pictures to create an original film, for goodness sake. Well, you're going to get one here, even though it is through Fox Searchlight. But now that means it's a Disney original motion picture. Huzzah! Uh, I just hope there's no photorealistic lions in this one. There might be a photorealistic Hitler, though. Uh, well, I don't want to say anything about that for fear of tying myself in knots. Uh, and I think on that <laughs> note, that should just about do over this week's episode, Scott. Uh, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton 2013 And you can find me at Scarvy Dent. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support the show, don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mediapluggedpods. But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that is okay, too. We'd still love it if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed over on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which we'll be reviewing Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.